So thank you. We're um, going to take take a break from the tedium of the Gospel of Luke for uh, a morning today and get to the good stuff, Leviticus. <laughs> um, our scripture reading this morning is from uh, the book of Leviticus, um, chapter 23, verses 15 to 22. Uh, if you'd like to follow along in the Blue Pew Bible, uh, you can find that on page 101. And while we're turning there, I, I do want to say for my part, um, it is impossible to express what it means for me to be standing at this pulpit and to be opening God's Word with all of you today. Um, I have been fed from this pulpit for many, many years, and I've seen the outcome of the faith of the fathers and brothers who have fed me from this pulpit um, It is a privilege, uh, and it is a weighty one. So I thank you, Darwin, for your prayer, and um, I invite you all together with me to give our attention to the word of the living God. Leviticus 23, starting verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as firstfruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the firstfruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Well, happy Pentecost, everybody. Uh, Let's talk about Christmas. (laughs) I'm assuming, well, most of you are part of the English-speaking world. Um, Sorry to our Lisu brethren who are here this morning. Uh, But those of you who are part of Western English-speaking culture are probably familiar with Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, a short book that he wrote in 1843. It's about Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's described as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. And one Christmas Eve, he's visited by three spirits. And these three spirits show him the joy that he's forgotten and the joy that he is missing out on. They show him the misery that he has caused through the years and that he is causing now. And they show him the very bleak future that his life is leading to. 
And all of this leads to the climactic cry of repentance. And Scrooge says, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. And his life really does change. At the the end of the book, the author writes, It was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. This book is what we call the Christmas spirit. It's the, the images, the feelings, the atmosphere, and the moral duties that we're reminded of each year at that time of year. Now, they don't necessarily have anything to do with Christ's birth as such. But at the same time, the fact that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago really should make us feel and think and act in certain ways. And not just at Christmas time, but all through the year. So, should the fact that Jesus Christ went up into heaven and he poured out his Holy Spirit onto his disciples, the people who had seen and spoken to him and been in his presence after he rose from the dead. And he empowered them to proclaim the good news about him. This needs to permeate our lives. This needs to be something that we celebrate and keep all through the year. So how do we do this? How do we honor Pentecost in our hearts and keep it all the year? What would it look like to be people who know how to keep Pentecost well? Well, it helps in the first place to know that the day that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, that wasn't the first Pentecost. It was a feast day. It was one that God had commanded his people to keep centuries before. The apostles, the people that they preached to on that day, it's reported in Acts chapter 2, They were there. They were gathered in Jerusalem because this was already a holiday. God chose this day because it already had a meaning. Darwin talked about this a bit at the beginning of the service. It was a holiday that was supposed to shape his people in particular ways. And as we look at how God taught Israel to keep the Feast of Weeks, as it was called in the Old Testament, and what it meant for them, and how it taught them to think and to feel and to act, then we can start to see how Jesus, by his Spirit, makes us into a Pentecost people. So in the first place, how do you keep Pentecost? Well, there are three basic commands, three key words in this passage. In the first place, counting, then bringing, and then leaving. Counting, bringing, leaving. Start with counting. Now, if there are two things that make a shipwreck of an awful lot of good intentions, New Year's resolutions, Bible reading plans. Um, It is long lists of weird names and lots and lots of numbers throughout the Bible. I can't help you with the names this morning. Um, But the numbers really are important because God uses numbers to define the spaces and the times in which he's going to meet with his people. He starts that right at the beginning. He starts counting days with the creation. He separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, the darkness night. There was evening, there was morning, one day. It starts from there. And for Israel, every seventh day is a Sabbath, the day of rest. 
And there's more than that. Their, their sacred calendar runs seven months. Passover and first fruits are in the first month, the beginning of harvest. That runs through Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, in the third month, which is where we are. And then in the seventh month come the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. And that's the end of the, the calendar of their feasts. And more than that, every seventh year is a Sabbath year. And after seven of those weeks of years comes the Jubilee, the year of release, of setting the debtors free, of canceling debts and restoring everyone's inheritance. So this tells us something already, just, just the numbers in here, about what kind of festival this is supposed to be. In the first place, the timing. It comes, as Darwin said, at a, at a pivot point in the harvest season. The barley harvest is wrapping up, and the wheat harvest is beginning. In the book of Exodus, this feast is called First Fruits of Wheat. But it also reminds us of Israel's history, because Passover points us back to God delivering his people out of Egypt. And it was 50 days later that Israel had arrived at Mount Sinai in the wilderness, having escaped from Egypt, and they received the law of God down from the mountain and entered into covenant with him. So that's counting. The second is bringing. And basically what bringing means is having church. It means having a worship service. So what do they bring? They bring first fruits, this grain offering of new grain in verse 17. Um, literally what it says is a new tribute. It's God's share of the harvest that's starting up at this time. Now, this tribute takes the form of a pair of wheat loaves, and it says specifically these are, they're leavened. And that means they can't be burned on the altar for God to eat so to speak. They're waved to dedicate them to God, and then they're given to the priests to be part of their meal. They're to be offered with the peace offering in verse 20. Now, there were a few different types of peace offerings. If you're really interested in this, you can look at Leviticus chapter 7, the middle of the chapter, and they had different purposes. Now, only one of these included leavened bread, and that's the thanksgiving offering. So this first fruits offering, this is a formal act of thanks. It's not just writing God a card. It's more like what we do if a legislature passes a resolution of thanks. Or if Congress or the president, our nation, bestows a medal on someone saying we recognize, we formally, officially, on the public record, recognize your service to your people. And we thank you. Then in verse 18 come the burnt offerings. Seven weeks before this, at first fruits, one lamb, male, one year old, is offered up to God, represents the people just like the Passover lamb in Exodus. And this offering now is multiplied because God has promised to multiply his people. And this, this offering is a picture of the whole people. Seven lambs. Seven whole lambs without blemish in verse 18 is the same word as full in verse 15. It's seven whole lambs for seven whole weeks. And then there's a bull which represents the priests. There are two rams that represent the civic leaders of the people. Verse 19, we have sin and peace offerings. 
One male goat is a sin offering. It purifies the people for God's presence, just like the offering of the Day of Atonement later in the year. And then finally, these two peace offering lambs in verse 19 complete that thanksgiving offering. They provide what's needed for that special meal in God's presence. Now, the list is in a little bit of a different order from the actual order of worship in the ancient Israelite bulletin. What you have first is that the people purify themselves by the sin offering, just like we confess our sins early in the service. And then by the burnt offerings, they approach God. They go into God's presence. They offer themselves to God. They bring their prayers. And they hear God's word. And then finally, with the peace offerings, they have a fellowship meal together with him. So that's counting and bringing And finally, the leaving. I don't know about you, but an awful lot of biblical scholars have looked at verse 22 and they have thought, this seems kind of tacked on. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with a holiday gathering for worship or anything like that. But it belongs here. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, these same feast days are described and, and the orders for how those are to be kept are given. And at the end of the rules for the Feast of Pentecost, it says, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. It means that you need to provide for those who are now like you once were. This is a harvest holiday. You've seen that already. And part of how you observe it is how you harvest. You don't optimize your harvest in ancient Israel. You don't maximize your yields. You make sure that there are leftovers, and plenty of them, for the people who don't have their own fields. So what's all this actually mean? What is God teaching his people with all this counting and bringing and leaving? Well, it's a harvest festival. It's a celebration of grain. It's a celebration of bread. And so three things about this. In the first place, it's about daily bread. It's about daily bread. The counting also helps us to see this. Like I said, the barley harvest is finished. The wheat harvest is beginning. That's meaningful. Barley, barley is your fallback. Food. You make bread out of barley if you're poor and you can't afford anything better. Wheat makes finer flour, it's more nutritious, and it's more valuable to sell. It's money in your pocket. And so year by year, Israel is publicly giving thanks to God specifically, saying, Lord, you have not let us starve. You have given us survival for another year and We see what's beginning. You are filling us with good things, good things to eat, riches, prosperity. Now the bringing, the offerings show us that this is different from Passover. It's linked to Passover, but it's distinct. Passover is the time of unleavened bread. Now when you see... um, the word leavened in the Old Testament, uh, don't let your mind go to, okay, I run over to Kroger and get a packet of baker's yeast. 
The way you made leavened bread is what we would call today sourdough. You keep a little of the last loaf that you made. You keep a little bit of that dough and you add it to the new loaf that you are making. And that's where the yeast comes from. It's sort of in a line of descent. It's the the child or grandchild of that first unleavened loaf that you made. Unleavened bread is new. It's a break with the past. You clear out the leaven and you start something new. So in that way, leavened bread is, it's grown-up bread, so to speak. It's bread that takes time to mature. It's bread that lasts longer than other kinds of bread. And it symbolizes that God really doesn't just leave things where he starts them. He's the God of Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you and will bring it to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. So this symbolism points us back to the story. It points us back to the history that Pentecost is celebrating. Because while it's about daily bread, it's also not about bread alone. Back to the counting. Fifty days after that first Passover in Egypt, the people were at Sinai, and there they received God's law for the first time. And this is the event that made Israel a holy nation. It made them a kingdom of priests. It made them a treasured possession to their God. Before this, they were nobody. After this, they are somebody. They are a new creation. Another thing about the counting, if you pay attention, you'll see that even in the Old Testament, Pentecost falls on a Sunday. It's treated like a Sabbath, but it's on a Sunday. It's a first day, a new creation day. And in God's law, these people, this new creation, has what it needs to receive every good thing that God promises, to be wise beyond any other people on earth, and to have real access to God's own presence. That's really why they're required to take a long weekend right in the middle of harvest time to gather for church because they need to go and remember the story that defines them and to remember that as wonderful as it is to be having a successful harvest, it's nothing compared to having God's word. But that story has a dark side too. If you've read the middle chapters of Exodus, you remember that the people quickly discover that having the law of God can be dangerous too. It's not dangerous because God is mean. It's dangerous because of who they are. God says from up on the mountain, and they hear his voice, he says, you don't make any carved images to worship. You just don't do it. Moses comes down the mountain. He declares the words to them, and they say, yes, Lord, all that you have commanded, we will do. And then a couple days, a couple weeks later, they are getting their high priest to carve them a cow for their worship service. This is, um, this is not a failure to keep in mind all the little minutiae and details of God's law. This is not the kind of thing that you do if you are basically good at heart but a little rough around the edges. And so it's not an accident, it's not a formality that there's a sin offering included in how this festival is celebrated every year. 
Because these people need to remember year by year that they are a people with the wrong kind of heart to serve a holy God. So while the feast celebrates what God has done for his people and what he has given them, it also points them ahead to the need, the need for God to do something even greater. They need God's law not just to be in their possession, but to be inside them, to be in their mouth and in their heart. And eating this bread, these first fruits, is actually a picture of this. Again, with this bread, with the two loaves, don't picture two loaves of Mrs. Baird's, as all good Texans would. This is the ancient Middle East. This is flatbread. This is big flatbread. Each of these uh, loaves is probably about three and a half pounds of flour, at least. But they're tablet-shaped. Two tablets, like the two tablets of the law on which the Ten Commandments were written. And this is eaten in God's presence for this festival, taken in. And this, this is part of why Jesus picks this day of all days to pour out his Holy Spirit, because this is what the Holy Spirit does. What that was a picture of, he actually accomplishes. He puts the word of faith, the gospel, into his people's hearts. And that's why on that day, instead of 3,000 people being put to the sword for their sin, 3,000 people here, they're cut to the heart and they're saved. So this is about daily bread. It's not about bread alone. And then finally, it's about bread for the life of the world. Because Pentecost is also a celebration of the fact that God's gift is plentiful. There's plenty to go around, not only for those who are on the inside, who are already God's treasured possession, but for those who are on the outside looking in. The poor, verse 22, that's... It's not the people who find themselves short of cash. These are the vulnerable. These are the people who are oppressed, who are taken advantage of. They're like Israel and Egypt. They're people for whom it's all gone wrong. Sojourners or resident aliens in that time, they did not have constitutional rights. They lived entirely at the mercy of the people that they were living among. Again, like Israel in Egypt. Again, back to the counting. Pentecost is seven Sabbaths into the year. It's a Sabbath squared for the math majors. It's a mini jubilee. It's a time for remembering the release of debts, for freeing those in bondage, just like God did in Egypt, redeeming Israel, reclaiming them as his inheritance. It shouldn't be surprising that our Jewish neighbors in the synagogues this weekend are reading the book of Ruth. That's the traditional reading for this this holiday. It's called Shavuot in Hebrew. Because this, this man Boaz, the Israelite, he extends kindness. He allows the foreign widow Ruth to glean in his fields and ultimately ends up taking her under his wing in marriage, 
And because he, of all people, kept Pentecost the way it was meant to be kept, this is what God uses to bring about King David and ultimately his greater son, Jesus Christ. So this Feast of Weeks points us to who God is. He's the one who gives bread to the hungry, even to those who have absolutely no claim on it, no right to it. And he is a jubilee God. He is a God who one day is going to end all bondage, even to sin and death itself, and establish a kingdom in which people from every nation will be gathered. So how are we to be a Pentecost people? How are we to keep Pentecost all the year? I thought about titling this sermon, How to Be Pentecostal. Um, (laughs) I wanted to be invited back to preach again someday, so... But I had a conversation with, uh, with a missionary from another organization once in Berlin, and um, somehow in the course of this, I mentioned, as one does, well, I'm not a charismatic. And he said, sure you are. So I you know, gave him a look. And he says, well, you believe that Christ poured out his Holy Spirit on the church and gave gifts, right, to equip his church and build them up. I said, oh, well, yeah, okay. So I'm a charismatic in that sense. But he did have a point. There's a sense in which you can't believe what the New Testament says about Jesus and about his church without being a charismatic in some sense. And in the same way, we can't be Jesus Christ's people without being Pentecostal in that same sense. Well, what it means for us, I would say, is basically the same thing as it did for those people at Mount Sinai, all those centuries ago, we count, we bring, and we leave. First, the counting. And what I mean by that is that we know the story that we're in, and we know where we are in it. Because Jesus Christ came, and he entered into Israel's story. He was born into it, and he transformed it from the inside. And he's now brought us into it. Jesus died at Passover, as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And he rose again at first fruits, as the first of a new human race. He made a decisive break with history in that way, but the gospel doesn't end there. Because 40 days later, he went up into heaven to minister before God forever, to be seated and to reign as king in God's presence forever, and he sent his spirit at Pentecost, so that multitudes of people could be brought into this new humanity, this new people. And our normal, real life is part of this story. The kingdom of God is the new leaven that has grown out of that. It's the way Jesus describes it in Matthew 13, 33. It's working its way into everything ever since that new beginning. But Just like Israel was looking forward to the wheat and the fruit harvest, keeping Pentecost knows that means knowing that, that the best is yet to come. That wheat harvest comes, the fruit harvest comes later in the summer. And finally, in Israel's calendar, at the very end, in the fall, you keep the Feast of Booths, and it is a lavish festival. 
lavish, dozens of sacrifices, feasting, good things. And God has saved us like he saved them, but greater. God has given us his spirit, and he has also promised to us that there is a feast awaiting us when our work is done. So counting means always asking ourselves, what has God already done and what has he promised that he will yet do? There are people in this room who remember me when I was 18 years old, which is a terrifying thought. You can ask them about it if that's your idea of a good time. And I just think back to the immaturity and the arrogance, the thoughtlessness that I brought with me into this building the first time I came here to worship. And those who knew me at that time in my life would probably tell you that that a lot changed between then and the time I was 22 and finishing up at TCU. But even looking back to just a couple of years after that, when I first met my wife, Anna, when we were both young single missionaries in Berlin, my self-pity, my fearfulness, my joylessness as a missionary at that time, comparing that to now, a decade or more later, I see what God has done. And at the same time, I know that if I compare that to the promise, the promise of being like Jesus Christ, there's no comparison There's no comparison. We need to keep these things in mind. That God has done tremendous things. But what's to come is far beyond that. So we count. We bring. What do we bring to God? Well, we bring what the sacrificial system always meant. We bring ourselves. We bring ourselves in repentance and faith. Because Christ has offered the ultimate sin offering And we call on God to accept that on our behalf, to purify us for his presence. And then we bring our bodies as living sacrifices, as Paul writes in Romans 12. We present them to God in their entirety, holding nothing back, so that he can use every part. Eyes, ears, nose, mouth, hands, feet, everything as an instrument of righteousness. And as we walk in love, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, we become a pleasing aroma to God. Just like in verse 18 of our sermon text. And finally, we bring the fruit of our lips as a sacrifice of praise. That, those are the words of, of Hebrews thirteen fifteen, And that phrase the author uses, sacrifice of praise, is the Greek translation of the offering of thanksgiving. The peace offering was a communion meal. It was feasting together with God. It was sharing what we have so that we can celebrate what he has done. And Hebrews says that we are supposed to make this offering, not just when we gather at this table as we will in a couple of minutes, but with our lips at all times. We gather, we sing, we declare God's great deeds, but how we speak needs to overflow out loud with this consciousness of what God has done and what he will do. So we count and we bring, and finally, what do we leave? 
what to do leaving in a Christian way all the year is in the first place to realize that we have something that people are hungry for. We had a, a really dear friend in Berlin, a neighbor named Francie. She had a little boy close to our boy's ages. And once Anna was, uh, was talking with her and just sharing mom life, and Francie mentioned that she'd really been having a hard time lately because her little boy would wake up with nightmares. He would be scared, and, and she didn't know how to handle that very well. And so Anna kind of plucked up her courage and said, well, well that happens with Peter pretty often. And, and when it does, I, I go in there and, and I pray with him, and I tell him that, that God is with him, and that God is stronger than anything that he might be scared of. And Francie, just with tears, said, I wish I knew how to tell my son about God. I grew up in East Germany. Nobody in my family believed in God. Nobody ever taught me anything about God. I wish I knew how to tell my son about God. The word of Christ, the spirit that is in us, these are bread for a starving world. Do we realize how many people we see each and every day all around us who have never experienced forgiveness, who have never experienced thankfulness the way that we experience thankfulness? They've never experienced fellowship, the company of people who are there to build each other up and glorify God and not use one another. How many people around us have no hope in grief? How many people have no comfort in the midst of their fears. And do we realize how many of those longings in us have been met? Or do we take those for granted? We have bread for a starving world, each and every one of us, no matter what our financial situation. So we realize this, and we live as those who have enough to share. We are not here in this room hearing a sermon, taking communion in order to be fed enough to get through another week. We are here to receive something that is meant to grow. It's meant to overflow. And it can do that in, in really simple ways. A friend of mine, Muhammad, grew up in the Middle East in a semi-observant Muslim family, had become an atheist before he ever came to Berlin to study. And he took part in an evangelistic Bible study that I helped to lead, and um, he asked a lot of good questions. He participated very well. It was a few months later that he came to faith. He came to Christ. And after that, we were together over coffee, and the Bible study came up, and he said, You know, Ben... Really, it wasn't any of the answers that you or the other leaders gave to my questions that made the difference. That's what you want to hear as a missionary and Bible study leader. He said, the fact that you took six Thursday nights over the course of the fall, that you took that time, that you thought it was worth answering all my questions, 
that's what made the difference for me. So where are the edges of our field? Where are the places in our lives as individuals, in our lives as a church, where hungry people can taste the goodness that fills us up? It's my challenge to us as believers. Now, in the first place, the poor are not just outsiders in the strictest sense, because there are people in this room, I know, I can guarantee it, who are not feeling filled up right now. There are people who are hungry. And if that's you, then you need to glean. You need to look for that grain. You need to look for God's word from those who are around you, from those that you're in fellowship with. In the same way, if you are feeling full, you need to look out and invite in the people who are hungry right now, who are feeling empty. Where do we see with our neighbors the places where our lives overlap? Is that parenthood? Is that work? What is it? And what difference does it make that we have the Spirit of God and we have the Word of God dwelling in our hearts? What difference does that make? And can they taste that? Are they welcome to taste that? And in the biggest picture kind of way, the answer of the church to this is missions. It's missions. We're saying, Lord, we have enough people to do the work of the church. We have enough to spare. We have enough to give away. If you think you are one of those who might need to be given away, I would love to talk to you about discerning that call. And for the rest of us, know how much it means to know that it is a Pentecost people who sends us into our parts of the world to be at the edges of the field with people who have never tasted and seen how good God is. So friends, beloved, we will rejoice in thanksgiving for what God has done and for the promise of what's to come. If we will offer ourselves up to God as living sacrifices cleansed by Christ's blood and acceptable to him for holy use, and if we will live as those who have enough in God's word, in God's spirit, to be filled and to fill the hungry, then we know how to keep Pentecost well if any man alive possesses that knowledge. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken this morning. We thank you for your word that makes us who were not a people to be a people. We thank you that your word is effective that it revives the soul, that it makes wise the simple, that it rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. And I pray that it would do that in each of us today. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen.